TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring. The flooring experts. Michael'sFlooringOutlet.com On the voice of St. Louis, KMOX. Welcome back. It's Overnight America online. If you wanted to find our podcast, just do a quick search for Overnight America. Joining us now is the author of a book called On the Road, Less Traveled, an unlikely journey from the orphanage to the boardroom, and author Ed Hagem joining us. Welcome. It's good to be here, Ryan. I appreciate the time. It's a fascinating look into really some real fascinating things. I, I wanted to go back and kind of talk about the beginnings of the book. And when Tracy, who set up this interview, uh, messaged me, I was reading how the story starts. It says, imagine if your father took you at three years old, kidnapped you, and then told you your mother was dead, and then taken to another part of the country, abandoned, and then left in several foster and orphanages situations. That's the early years of your life, and what a, what a way to begin a story as well. So uh, some of the earliest memories that you have, w- do you remember much of your dad, or by the time you were in a foster situation or an orphanage, was it difficult to remember? No, I remember my dad very well. He was, you know, I think in the book you will find uh, when he kidnapped me, it was stated that he was feeling and not thinking, and my mother, by releasing me, was thinking and not feeling. He loved me dearly. When they got divorced, uh, she, she took me from Los Angeles to, to St. Louis, where her home was. And he had visiting rights only on Sunday. And he drove from Los Angeles to St. Louis. And, quote, unquote, he found me in not a great condition and decided instead of taking me to a movie to the, or the playground, he got on Highway 66, which is on the front of the book, and drove me back to Los Angeles. He called my mother and told her, I found this out later, obviously, that she should not not look for us. And he told me a few while later that she was dead. Now, I don't remember that. Being only three years old, I couldn't. But during the, that period from three to five, Dad was a merchant marine, and he was away even a great deal of time during those two years, and I lived with Mrs. Benson. But when he was there, we were real buddies. He would take me every place. We would go to the beach together. We would go to the desert together and so on. But when the war started, uh, he was either drafted or volunteered into the Merchant Marines as an officer. And then I started my foster home and, and orphanage you know, trip. It was at five foster homes. Uh, then after the war, he came back on the East Coast. We stayed in the YMCA in New York City, William Sloan House, for a couple of months. Then uh, a hotel room in Coney Island. He couldn't find any land-based work. He went back to sea. 
and I ended up in two orphanages. So it was, wow. a, it was a, a road less traveled, and I, you know, there aren't too many people to get through that kind of a road and uh, stay positive, and I did. Uh, so my father what years would this sent have been? me a message that you know things would be better. Mm. And uh, I guess there are other reasons which I can get into if you'd like. But the early yes. period, the period was a was an unusual period. And and when I was 18 years old or or 17 years old, when I was a senior in high school, and I finally got into a private college, I decided to bury that part of my life. Psychologists that are on this phone call or they say that's a terrible thing to do, but it was allowed <laughs> me to really put it behind me. I didn't have to deal with it, and I didn't yeah. deal with it for 55 years. And that's well, really for this book. If I decided I would bring it out in the open and deal with it, because it may help other people that have similar backgrounds. So what years are we talking? What years? Uh, I, started, I was born in 36. Mm-hmm. We were, they were divorced in 39, which was very unusual. She was 24 years old. For a 24-year-old woman with a 3-year-old child, get divorced in 1939 just didn't happen. And when she returned to her family, which was one of six children, her parents were not excited to see her or a three-year-old child. It was, a, you know, 39 was a very difficult period. We were still in the Depression. And, uh, and in 39, uh, I was kidnapped in 39 later that year. Uh, Dad and I were together in 39-41. Then the bombing of Pearl Harbor uh, caused him to go into the service. And then from 41 to uh, 40, 40, uh, 46, I was in foster homes. The war ended in 46. Uh, he called me back to the, the East Coast. He managed to talk the airlines into having a 10-year-old fly alone across country. Only took 20 hours and four stops. One of the stops was St. Louis, by the way. Well, and we landed that? in New York every 20 hours. And then I spent the next, from 40, 46, 7, I spent in Coney Island at a public high school, public uh, grammar school. And then from 47 until I graduated high school in 1954, I was in, four, in uh, two orphanages. Wow, that surprises me because a lot of servicemen took trains out of St. Louis. It was a giant hub here. So not, you don't hear a lot of people traveling by plane in that sense. No, no, it was a DC-10, and, and it was rough getting over the mountains. I mean, I, you know, I still remember that as a child. I was sick as could possibly be, you know, going over. The, we, went over we flew from Los Angeles to Oklahoma City. That was the first stop. Then, wow. then uh, uh, Denver, St. Louis, uh, Chicago, and then finally New York. 20 hours. Wow, that's a lot of time. And that's uh, the the foster system, the orphanage system, things like that, much different than it is today. Oh, no, so, they're, they're, they're one of the questions they ask, would, you, would things have been different today? Totally different. I yeah. mean, the, the foster care system, it was a Catholic foster care system, was the best in, in the West Coast at that time. But, you know, people took foster children for the money. You know, there, there, was, there was abuse. There was, I mean, my, the first foster home was cold and abusive. But the fifth one was warm and caring. So, you know, I got the best and the worst of both worlds. And, and the, the, you know, the, I remember the woman's name. Her name was Mrs. Rush. She would visit every couple months and ask whether or not I was okay or not. But you couldn't possibly tell her that because you, you, you don't want to get in trouble with your foster parents. So Yeah, boy. Yeah, so my father really had a great deal of difficulty. He, he, he was a difficult man, but he had difficulty with all the foster parents. That's probably why I was in five foster homes in five years. Yeah. So how long was your dad in your life? Uh, up until what age? Well, no, dad stayed with me. Well, he, he stayed with me, uh, you know, when I, when I went to in the foster homes and, and in these orphanages, he wrote me letters regularly. And he would not let me ever say that I was a bad boy. That was one of the positives. He convinced me that I had a better life ahead and that I was the greatest thing since sliced bread. He always saw how great I was. And I, you know, I was a little tiny guy. I was 
I was four foot ten, eighty pounds when I ended high school. Anyway, he stayed with me till I was four, fourteen years old in the second orphanage, and then he disappeared completely. And that mm. I didn't find out why until twenty fifteen. And I can spend wow. some time on that if you like. It wasn't a, a nice story. I became a ward of the state when I was fourteen because I was aging out of the first orphanage. They didn't keep people beyond high school before I was a freshman high school. They didn't have any other high school students, and I had to be transferred. And the social system finally was able to get the papers done, and I was transferred to an orphanage in Yonkers, New York, where they had older boys, and there was a high school four blocks away, which was a godsend. It was an yeah, excellent okay. high school. And I, at that point in time, I decided, boy, the only way out of this thing was a college. And the, and the road less traveled was a private college. Orphanages, orphan kids, poor kids did not go to private colleges. They, they, and I went to the, I applied to every scholarship under the sun, and I can talk about that. And, but I made my mind up I was going to go to private college and I was going to take this background that I had and hide it because I didn't want any sympathy and I didn't want to have to explain to everybody, you know, what was going on. That was a mistake, I suspect, looking back on it. But it's something wow. I thought I had to do at the time. Yeah, so we, uh, we have an hour here and there's so much more I want to talk to you about. And we're going to have to take a break. But maybe after the break, I do want to talk more about your dad sure. and things that you may have discovered maybe conversations you had with him about your mom and what really uh, what you knew at the time. And joining us here is author Ed Hagem, and his book is On the Road Less Traveled. If people wanted to look up your book, Ed, where can they look? You go to Amazon or Simon & Schuster. And what's nice about it now is I've got the audio version. So if you're a slow reader like me, you can just listen to it. That's I've amazing. got a great... Now, I, I narrated a very small portion of it, but Rob Shapiro, who's done 50 of these books, really has my voice. He does a very good job. So you want the regular version, it's Amazon or Simon & Schuster, very easy, On the Road Less Travel by me or, or, uh, or Simon & Schuster. Both of them have my name on it. Right. Ed Hagem, H-A-J-I-M, Hagem. you got to pronounce it correctly. You're the first person in history. <laughs> <laughs> and Ed will join us right after the break on Overnight America KMOX. Earning St. Louis's trust for 96 years, this is KMOX. What a fascinating story. Author of the book, On the Road Less Traveled. You can find it online. And author Ed Hagem joining us on Overnight America. And right before the break, we were talking about your dad and getting through high school. I didn't realize that there was certain restrictions about once you got to a certain age, there was only certain orphanages or foster homes or whatever it may be that took high school-aged kids in that sense. The, the and, orphanage. Usually, 14 years old, going to high school, they didn't want to deal with those kinds of problems. They dealt with children. Actually, there were some kids there, you know, one or two years old, and at 14, they really didn't have the facility to handle us. There were other orphanages, and I was very lucky because when I became a ward of the state, you know, they could send, those days, there were, there were, boy, there were you know, schools and homes for wayward boys. I mean, you could get into a really bad situation. Orphanages were not great to start off with, but the one they transferred me to, in Yonkers, New York, was a very good one with three boys in a room. At the first orphanage, for example, we were 50 people in a room. And when you get to be a 14-year-old boy, it, it doesn't, that's not such a good deal. So this was, they're, uh -huh. they're very different facilities. But they you were know, very uh, lucky because this one had, was four blocks from a very good high school. And it was yeah, a very it, good orphanage with uh, excellent, with, I guess what you call a headmaster, or, or we call them the boss, who was really interested <laughs> in the boys. The first one was co-ed, again, a problem with older, older boys. <laughs> and this one was all boys. 
Yeah. But let me ask you about a few things. And you, you said you found out about what really happened to your dad well after it. And it was just a couple of years ago. And uh, otherwise, you found out about your mom. But before we get to those things, I'm kind of curious when you got to college and you were continuing your learning, things like that. A lot of times people look at college as an, uh, you're able to reset yourself. You're almost like you're starting a new image. You're starting a new life. No one knows who you are. You can actually start a brand new life. Did it feel like that for you? You just took my story away. Hey, Ryan, I'm the talker here. <laughs> That's exactly what I tell people these days. Uh, I, I remember Horatio Alger, and we, and these kids are going to graduate high school and go on to college. I say, you know, you can really draw a line like I did, if you want to. A lot of kids want to let it hang out and say, my father was a drug addict, my mother was a criminal, what have you. But you can really draw a line and say, I am now a new person. I'm going to a new location, and I did that. Now, but you come in, and I remember, I remember the first day I was at school walking in my suitcase with the wrong clothes, had the wrong hairdo and a leather jacket. You know, I wasn't preppy at all. And the most important, I've for about, you know, half an hour I felt terrific. I had a new life and so on. All of a sudden I look at these kids being unloaded by their parents and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then I, got, I really had a downer for a while. Mm. But really, in many respects, I decided I was going to have a new life and be a new person. And within six to nine months, I cleaned up my act, I changed my clothes, I cut my hair, and I started to become, you know, one of the crowd. But at first it was, it was a hard transition. The biggest problem was not exactly how I looked or even my clothing. It was how I felt. I felt so different from everybody else. I didn't have the same kinds of reactions that, that other kids had. And you have to get over that. And that's one of the things I'm going to try to communicate to some of the groups I'm working with now. Get these kids, these first-gen kids or these you know, foster home kids, and said, look, you're going to feel funny for a while. And you've you got to, you got to com not conform completely, but you've got to, you know, sort of adjust. And when people talk about certain things, you've got to accept the fact you're not going to feel that way. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, those are the kinds of things. But I did adjust relatively rapidly. I was an athlete, so I played intramural football. I was on the freshman basketball and baseball team. And I started to get really involved. And I was a pretty good student. I was a chemical engineer and uh, did pretty well in chemistry, and all of a sudden I got accepted. The biggest downer of all was, in those days, they had uh, fraternity rushing almost right the first week of school, and of course I got rejected by every fraternity on campus, which didn't send a good <laughs> message to me at all. But by my sophomore year, since I'd done all these activities and so forth, I got a number of bids, actually, and joined one of the, the best fraternities on campus. So things changed. But, but you have did to you say, that uh... period. Kids like me flunk out regularly. I mean, they don't flunk out academically, they flunk out socially. And the statistics are horrendous. In fact, even today, less than half of the first gens or the foster home kids get through college. And but did days, you say uh, uh, you joined the intramural basketball team and you were joining college at 4'11"? No, well, I, no, I went to high school at 4'11". When I was yeah. 14 years old, I was 4'11". Oh, I, I started high school. Okay. And when that they, make, okay, junior, I thought that was the... My sophomore, junior year, I grew almost six inches. And when I played, oh, wow. I played uh, JV basketball, uh, I was five foot seven. I, didn't, I made the varsity, but I sat on the bench for the whole year. But I played varsity yeah. baseball at high school. And in college, mm -hmm. I played freshman baseball and freshman basketball. Oh, and then gave great. that up for well, intramurals later on. Yeah, it sounds like you were busy with sports. It sounds like social situations and, you know, trying to join a fraternity, your studies, all of these different things. And college is such a transitional time anyway in so many different people's lives. Did you often think about your parents, whatever happened to them, or were you so busy with everything else going on? It wasn't even 
on your front burner. That was still in my life. He would he would write me letters. There wasn't any financial support, but he would write me letters off and on. You know, I didn't see him much. Once one, I'd see him. You know, I saw him one Christmas. You know, I, I saw him a little bit. Uh, but I, you know, the trick was, and I probably didn't know what I was doing exactly at that time. But I kept myself very busy. Uh, in my sophomore, junior, and senior year, I was Mister Involved. I made all the honorary societies. My list of things that I was involved in, I was. I was editor of the yearbook and editor of the yearbook. I was chairman of the engineering council, chairman of the finance board. I was business manager of Dramatic Society. In my junior year, I even started a, a humor magazine from scratch, which the administration was violently opposed to. I wanted to create a Harvard lampoon at the University of Rochester, and I got it done. I can discuss it because that had a big effect on my life. But you're right. I kept myself very busy. I didn't think about my background. I just kept myself busy. I had to work also because I had to make ends meet. So I, I had all kinds of jobs. I worked in the laundry. I waited tables. I, I had to get a typewriter. So I wrote about three typewriter companies and said, I'll be your representative on campus to sell typewriters. And one of them bit the bullet and sent me a typewriter. So I, I did, And then in the summertime, I, did a lot, I worked in a lot of different jobs. I, you know, I, I uh, picked up railroad ties off of an uh, abandoned railroad line. I worked on a St. Lawrence Seaway. I pitched biggest job I ever had. The best job I had was pitching letters in the mail in the uh, post office because you could work twelve hours and get paid for it. So you know, no. it was, I was very busy. And I, looking back, and that's one thing nice about writing a book. I started to realize why I did certain things, why I kept piling, you know, activities on top of a very, you know, chemical engineering was one of the most difficult majors. We started with sixty, and only six of us graduated. And in my junior year, I took physical and organic chemistry at the same time and founded a humor magazine. So I kept myself very busy. I, I did, probably didn't realize at the time that it was a little bit of an escape mechanism so I didn't have to think about, you know, on, on, for example, on holidays, I worked. Occasionally someone would take me to their home, a couple of my good, very good friends, but I'd always go back and work New Year's Eve. And usually, you know, I'd never go down for Christmas because it was, a, you go to someone's house at Christmas time and it was a, pretty much of a downer for me. But it, no. it was, uh, I kept myself busy, and, and, and being busy, of course, I became Mr. Involved on campus, and that really worked out well with, with uh, you know, dates and, and friends and so forth. <laughs> so I, I actually became very involved in the school and, and then was made all, made all the honorary societies and so on. And so it was really a, it was a, it was a worthwhile combination. And my, but my father was in my life with letters, and, uh, you know, like the first Christmas. Uh, it was an awful, I mean, it was, it was a, it's not in the book. It was one of the worst experiences I've ever had. I had to, I was in the service, and if you had a uniform, you could ride on the train free. And my father happened to come into Oakland, California, and I took the train from Rochester to Oakland, took three days. I spent three days with him, and I got back on the train, took another three days to get back to, to Rochester, and then waited tables New Year's Eve. So it was not a great holiday for me. Freshman year was a very tough one, and that's what I'm hoping. I'm, I'm in a couple of groups, like a group called Wiley that deals with these foster kids, if I can give them the impression that, you know, freshman year is going to be hell, but it's going to be all right. Here are the things you should do or try to do. Those are the wow. kinds of things that I'm hoping to do with the book and with my life. Yeah, and you've spent a lot of uh, years after that documented in the book On the Road, Less Traveled. And for the sake of time, we should probably save more for after the break. But I, I do want to talk to you about what life was like after college. In particular, you talked at the start of the interview, uh, the start of it being that your dad takes you 
says that your mother is no longer alive and you get to the point of your life where you start to wonder and you look back and you wanted to know what happened and the shock of finding out that she actually was alive. I want to know more about that after the break. So when we come back, we're going to have more with our guest author, Ed Hagem on the road, less traveled. You can look up his book online. This is Overnight America KMOX. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. It's better over here. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. News Radio AMOX, the home of the Cardinals. Very fascinating story here is from author Ed Hagem, and the book is called On the Road Less Traveled, an unlikely journey from the orphanage to the boardroom. And I got to say, Ed, I, it's not that I want to gloss over a lot of what happened to you after college, but I'm so interested in learning about the family dynamic of all of this. And as an adult, I wanted to know when you decided to want to learn more about your mom. And you said that it was later that you found out what happened to your dad too. And all of these things came later in life for you. Well, I never, never really wanted to find out about my mom. I never saw a picture of her. My father gave me, you know, bad, very bad vibes Said she was not interested in children, didn't like me in the first place and that she died. And that's the lie, the lie that I lived until I was 60 years old. And I never had to deal with it because that was the assumption. People said, what, what happened to your mother? She died. And she died in childbirth and, you know, and so on. That, that was his story. My, my wife never really bought the whole story, but she wasn't willing to, you know, to argue about it. And so I never really looked for her, never was interested, never saw a picture of her. And I just said that was it. You know, my father was a, you know, this is what happened. When we were 60 years old, when, when my father died in 1971, died of a heart attack in his car. So it was very, very quick. And there's a long story on that, too, because we didn't have closure. You know, we were estranged by the time he died because he disagreed with my leaving the Navy. He disagreed with my leaving my engineering job. He disagreed with me going to Harvard. And he disagreed with me marrying Barbara because uh, Barbara, unfortunately or fortunately, looked like my mother. I guess, mm. you know, people always marry their mother. And wow. so anyway, uh, when I went to his, his apartment to help clean it out, there was a suitcase full of a lot of letters. He kept every letter I ever wrote to him and a lot of you know, namesakes and so forth. I started to go into the suitcase, and it had such bad memories, I put it away. And, I, and after he died, I spent six months, and in, in the first time in my life I ever went for help, I went to a counselor to, to try to solve the problem because we didn't bring, you know, because he died so suddenly I didn't have closure. Uh, anyway, so the suitcase in 1971 went into the house in Greenwich, Connecticut, and stayed there uh, for, you know, I guess 25 years till I was 60 years old. And my wife, who uh, periodically goes through and cleans out houses, says, Ed, if you don't look in a suitcase, I'm throwing it away. And it happened to be on a rainy weekend, so I started to go into it. 
and I went into it and I looked at all the letters and you know all the letters that I wrote and so forth. And then there was a package of yellow letters, which sort of yellow colored letters. I went into them and found it. Sure enough, the letters between my mother and my father. There wow. was the divorce papers, and she didn't die. So I wow. said, "Oh my God, I've been living a lie for sixty years or fifty-seven years." And so I hired a, a, a private investigator. The only, the only, only story we had was the last place that she was was in St. Louis at Coopport, oh. actually. And so huh. this, the, the, vet, the investigator went to work, had couldn't find much out, and then we decided, to, why don't you look for Hadrum? There's only one Hadrum in the world, and was me. It was made up by the customs. That's why I'm surprised you pronounced it correctly, because nobody does. <laughs> anyway, so they, they found a marriage marriage because she had gotten married in 1946, the year that I landed there as a 10-year-old. Of course, I, wow. I was in the airport. I probably wasn't more than a few miles from her where she was living. Anyway, uh, I wrote her a letter, which is in the book, and said, I think I'm your son. <laughs> and uh, we picked the time for her to call, and she called. We decided to rendezvous. I, went, I flew to St. Louis with my wife and uh, got a, went to her apartment, rang the doorbell, and said, she answered the intercom, and I said, I'm your son, 57 years late. And wow. uh, that started a wonderful 12-year experience where we really integrated into our family. It took me a couple of months once between the time I discovered it and the time I wrote the letter because we had to decide whether we really wanted to take a chance. I mean, she could reject me. She could be a terrible person. You know, she could who knows what. And we had, you know, I had, a, had three children. Barbara's mother had basically adopted me. She was my my, really, my mother, she treated me just like the family. So we had to decide whether we wanted to integrate it. We, we decided it was best to do it, and so we went ahead with it. And it worked out extremely well. We had 12 wow. wonderful years. She died at 93. Uh, and uh, we had a lot of good conversations, and I learned a lot about her relationship with my father. Of course, she had the opposite opinion of him. That he was, well, sure. And I learned a lot of things that I thought were true anyway about him, how difficult he was and, and how he you know, had very strange you know, personal habits he was, was overly clean, you know, he was anal in his, in his cleanliness, he, was, he had very unusual eating habits, he was a veg- at that time it was unusual being a vegetarian, and he didn't believe in women working, in fact he thought, he kind of was from the old country in a sense, women were supposed to be in the house and be seen and not heard and so on, but anyway, I got a lot of chance to talk to her, and it was a wonderful experience, and she became very close with Barbara's mother and Barbara's aunt, who was also in her 90s, they all lived into their 90s, the three old ladies had a very good time together, and I, but I had to call her, Every Sunday, or else wow. I got in trouble. Good, good. Well, th- this is something that is fascinating because it took you a little time to talk to the wife and really figure out if you should do something. Because I know a lot of people listening right now would say, of course, if that was me, I would want to know. I would reach out in a heartbeat. But it's a, it had to have been a really tough decision when you're still thinking to yourself, uh, do I really, you know, at this age and her age and all of this, is it better to just let it be? If it wasn't for your wife, would you have made the same decision to reach out to your mom? I think I would have come to the conclusion most people, but remember the impression I had of my mother was not good. So I was starting off with a mean woman who didn't like children. You know, my father put a lot of work, a lot of things in my head that I had to deal with. So so I had, I, we took a lot of time. Also, I, I, you know, it was going to affect, it, it actually had an effect on Barbara's mother. Barbara's mother was kind of never the same again when my mother arrived. They became friends, but they, they, it, it affected her. You know, you huh. bring an, an, uh, some, some very important person into a family, it affects the family. They got along very well, but Barbara's mother sort of started to fade. And she was a little older than my mother. And uh, we thought about it a lot. And we all, you know, also thought about the children, having another grandmother and so on. 
but you couldn't tell what kind of a person she was. I mean, did I need at that point in time? By the way, in 19, 1996, I was running my own company, 800 people, 500 million in revenues. I was the CEO. You know, I was also involved in, you know, the University of Rochester. I was a trustee. I had a lot of, I was at Harvard Business School involved there, too. So I was a busy guy, and I didn't need a disruptive influence. But you know, say most people, I came to the same conclusion. I would have come to the same conclusion. Now, Barbara would have objected to it. That might have been a different story. She said, Ed, we shouldn't do this, but she was very much in favor of it. And by the way, she wow. thought all along that, that the story was not true, that my mother was not what my father said. And she just felt that, you know, we, again, didn't need to go and look around. And also, we had a feeling that if she was still alive, she'd be looking for us, and she never did. Hmm. That is interesting, too, uh, the fact, why didn't she reach out to you? Is, did she make an effort? No, never. And, and, and uh, there were two cousins. They were, they, when I was three years old, they were six and seven. And we visited my mother. They were there. They were there in the 60s. It was a very funny thing, looking at pictures of three little kids and then looking at the three of us. I, I was 60, and they were in their, late, in their mid-60s. Uh, but uh, she never looked for me. Again, going back to that experience when, when I was kidnapped, she was feeling and not thinking. Mm-hmm. But she was mm-hmm. thinking and not feeling. My father was feeling and not thinking. She thought that she was better, I would be better off with my father. Because where she was, her parents were not enthusiastic about having her or me. And she felt I'd be better off. And she thought I'd be better, I'd live better off leave, to leave me alone. She was a very practical woman. In fact, when we met, there was no great emotion, at least not for the first few hours, then, then the emotion started. She was a, wow. a very practical lady. Uh, you know, just yeah. un, unusually so. And you said this happened all here in St. Louis. Creve Corps was where she was Corps, living? Yeah, she, she lived there. She was in St. Louis for 90 years. She was born in Georgia wow. and came to St. Louis when she was two years old. And she lived in a, in a, in a, a, a senior residence for a while and finally died there. No, she was an absolute character. And it should have been a, I mean, if I was more, I was, I was a fellow who lived under the mantra to, to live happy, to live hidden. And that day when I arrived, some, the front page of the St. Louis newspaper had a woman discovering her daughter after 27 years. And here I was discovering my mother after 57 years. But I was, I was a private person and I wasn't going to bring it out. But there were so many similarities. The minute I saw her, first of all, she talked fast. And as you know, in St. Louis, not too many people talk fast. <laughs> <laughs> and she leaned over a little bit the way I leaned over, and she told funny stories. She, and she rhymed the way I rhymed. So there were a lot of things. We hadn't seen each other in 57 years, but there was some similarities, which were very unusual. And the mannerisms. She didn't look that, a little that's... bit like my wife. So Did she, she? Did you look at old photos? Does she look like your wife, you said? A little bit. A yeah, little just bit. a little. Yeah, a okay. little bit. I looked at old well, photos. Not many, though. Well, well, let's say that first face-to-face you had with her, and you know you're face-to-face with your mom you haven't seen in 57 years. It's been too young of a memory to really remember what she looks like. Did you automatically know it was her? Did you have that gut feeling? I had a gut that, feeling. That's what it was. She, I, she, you know, I, unfortunately, my wife will bitch about this, but I lean over a little bit. I don't stand up straight. She didn't stand up straight. She talked. She, and even though we hadn't talked together for all those years, she had a, a quick, she has quick, she has also, she even early on, she had humor, which I, I injected most of the things I do. And it just there were some characteristics that I, she was my mom. I could tell. And it was, that was a, that, then, then the emotion started to come out. It was a, we were into it a couple hours. And the funniest, the funniest story of all, she told her husband, the second husband, that she was married before and had a son. But she didn't tell her son, who was born a few years later. So she calls him up, calls up poor Phil, who's a doctor, and says, remember that brother you always wanted? 
<laughs> you have a stepbrother. Who well, was there oh, too? Wow. And, wow. and you know, then after a couple hours, the emotion got to be you know pretty heavy because we started to realize we were a family. Wow, what an amazing thing! And did she know that your father passed? Was she aware of that? Well, she wasn't. No, she she felt he would live forever. Being a vegetarian, being you know cleanliness is next to godliness. You know, he took care of himself. He exercised, and. Uh, you know, he died for another uh, totally different reason. I mean, I, yeah. I can go into that and spend time on that. But, uh, you know, well, he, how about he, was, this? he was healthy. As, you know, I mean, I, we, we, would, we would go to vegetarian restaurants, you know, and he, he took care of himself like nobody I'd known. But it, yeah. he, had a, he had, so just had a heart attack and, and died suddenly. Wow. Well, how about this? Uh, we have one more break, and then I wanted to get your thoughts, your conclusions, and as you reflect on your book, On the Road Less Traveled, after writing and going through all of these different memories, uh, w- what your conclusions are. So I want to make sure anyone listening right now, author Ed Hajim, H-A-J-I-M, and if people wanted to find your book, where can they find it? Amazon is the easiest. Uh, Simon & Schuster. Mm-hmm. If you want to learn a little bit about me, and luckily I'm Ed Hajim's on you, so it's www edhagem.com. I have a website which has all kinds of good stuff on it, stuff I never wanted to tell anybody, but it's there. Amazon's the <laughs> easiest. Simon & Schuster, near three other four places. When you go to the website, you can see that there are four places you can buy the book. Great, and we'll continue with Ed right after it's the awesome. break. This is, oh, this is Overnight America, KMOX. Overnight America with Ryan Recker is sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michaelsflooringoutlet.com On the voice of St. Louis, KMOX. Ed Hey Jim is the author of On the Road Less Traveled. And you heard his story. And wow, what an amazing story. And there's so much more to the book. So if this fascinates you or you may know someone that this would uh, be important to, you go, you can always pick up the book or What's nice about Amazon is you can just ship it straight to their house and don't even tell them. Uh, On the Road Less Traveled, you can find it on there. And Ed, as you go back and you've lived uh, many years on this planet and you start to recall some of these events in your life, were there any new emotions that came out as you were telling the story? Oh, yeah. I I had trouble writing it. It took me seven years. The early parts were going back and researching who I was and what I did. There's a couple of things. When you write things down... You have to make sure you, you, you're telling exactly what's happening and you're hoping that people read it that way. And then you've got to separate facts from things you remember. And I went back and read a lot of letters. And it was very emotional going through my childhood. And then, of course, it was very interesting to see, you know, I started to learn why I made certain decisions and why I acted the way I did. Why was I so crazy busy at, at college? It was a, somewhat of an escape mechanism, but actually worked. It helped me out. Because it gave me a lot of different kinds of experiences. No, I, I had a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of emotion flowing through there, uh, and then of course in, with my own family, going back and looking at the, the kinds of things I did with my family and why I did them, and they were basically reaction, basically from my childhood. And I also tried to understand how my childhood affected me. For example, what I'm try- going to try to convince young people is that if you have a difficult childhood or difficult experiences as a child, it can give you advantages from those disadvantages. In other words, living in 15 or 20 different places my first 18 years gave me adaptability. I mean, I had no problem adapting later on in life to changes because I'd had all these changes earlier and I succeeded in getting through them. And like resilience is a muscle. And I had great resilience. I had to bounce back. If you go to, you know, from one public school to the other public school, you have to find your place. There's a real rites of passage. But having done that a couple of times, you build a certain resilience to, 
you know, starting out at a low level and bouncing, bouncing back. You gain perseverance. And then in later life, you gain two things that, you know, are very unusual and very, one, very important. One is empathy. I mean, when I interviewed people as a CEO of a company, I could empathize with, with, with somebody's ba- difficult background or maybe their accident wasn't right or maybe they had, you know, they didn't get quite the schooling. I could empathize with that. And then finally today, the biggest thing is gratitude. I am so grateful for what's happened to me. And that's one of the messages in the book is, you know, anything is possible. And, and I'm kind of living proof that it's true. Well, how do you get past the approach? Because the way that you're looking at this, you have a lot of wisdom and maturity. And I think a lot of people would come into this with a whole different mindset. They'd be very angry, slighted. It would be a very difficult thing for them to get past. So how does someone get past that? Get past pardon. Well, because I imagine, I would say that pretty much anyone I would think would come into this very angry about everything in their life. They'd be angry no, about angry. the situation they're in. It was, yeah. I, it was interesting. I was very angry, and and uh, what was interesting that again, a little mechanism. I, I directed the anger inside, and there was a lot of people get angry and they become victims, and that is really destructive. And that's another message I want to pass on to as many people as I can: do not become a victim, no matter how difficult the situation is. Always look ahead, because the victim saps your energy. And I, I, for some reason, and I'm still working on this, I didn't. I always looked ahead. I took whatever happened to me. I was never a victim. You know, no matter how difficult the situation was, I was always looking ahead to the next. What's next? And you're right. But I was angry, and I still. I was angry through my early 30s and 40s and 50s, and I did throw golf clubs and tennis rackets, and you know, <laughs> I was. At Sundays would be a very difficult period for me. Even my wife would say, "Here he goes again." Because on Sunday, it was a difficult period because the orphanages, everybody else got visitors, and I didn't. I think it's what an impression on me. But, but I, you know, and I had sort of, I have anger. You know, I sometimes misplaced anger, but never against anyone else. Very, very rarely was externally angry. It was always inside me. And it gave me a bit more drive, actually. So mm. it, it actually, I can use it. I, I use it. Now, I'm slowly getting rid of it. You know, it, it, it's rare now. But I spent some time in... in you know, anger management. Now, it didn't show it as much as it should. You know, and in my business life, I was always very careful. But even mm-hmm. then, at points in time, I got very angry, but never at anybody else. But you're right. Wow. Most people would get angry, and people do get angry. And once they get angry, and, they, they, and it's external, then it's deleterious to their system. Wow. And it's so much that could help people dealing with any of this. If, if any of this strikes a chord and you're interested in learning about this story, On the Road, Less Travel by author Ed Hajim, H-A-J-I-M. And for the past hour, you told your story here, and there's so much more in the book. I got to say, thank you so much for taking that time here on CamelX. All right. Thank you. Good questions. Appreciate it very much. But I'd like to, you know, uh, the other one point I really want to make is that education is the solution to everything, and I'm contributing my whole life, whatever le- whatever is left of it, toward education and, and, and making sure people get as much education as possible. And I think that's, that's really one of the answers we have to have here. Thank you it very does, much for your time, great. and have yes. a good evening. And- you too. EdHajim.com if you wanted to look up his website. H-A-J-I-M. Uh, Simon & Schuster, Amazon, places you can find his book, On the Road Less Traveled. What a fascinating story with a great tie-in to St. Louis here. Wow, truly amazing. All right, when we come back, we're going to take a look at your news, your weather, and a few other things that I found trending on KMOX.com. Roadside litter apparently cost Illinois a lot of money. Do we have a litter problem in the area? I'm curious what you've seen when you drove around. But uh, homicide rates up again in St. Louis. We'll talk about that, too, coming up on Overnight America, KMOX. KMOX.
TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months.